As we turn our attention to God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with joy-filled reverence and sober humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin prepares our hearts and minds to do that. Let's read it together. This is the one whom I look upon with favor, declares the Lord, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Thank you, Lucy. Just a few pregame announcements here. Uh, first, uh, we've been about, we're about two, three weeks now into our men's discipleship ministry. It is going so well. It is so much fun to meet with the other men, to encourage each other, to talk about God's word. We're going through the book of Mark. And if you'd like to join us, it's a Tuesday afternoon, 445, Thursday morning, 645. We go for an hour, a little more than an hour. You would be so welcome, guys. You're so welcome to come. And it's just, it's great to be able to journey together through Mark's gospel to sit and just listen to Mark as he tells the story of Jesus. Uh, so men's discipleship group second, our adult Sunday school. Uh, right now we're going this fall, we're going with this book called Confronting Christianity, 12 Difficult Questions for the World's Largest Religion. And the question this afternoon, the question that we'll talk about after the service today is, does Christianity denigrate women? What a great question. What a sensitive question. Isn't religion, and Christianity in particular, that the patriar patriarchal religion, isn't it responsible for pushing women down, for keeping women uh, uh, from, from elevating and going up in life and in the world? Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? The third thing I want to invite you to is to consider, as you probably know, we have the Advent season coming upon us. The first Sunday of Advent is the, actually the 28th, right after Thanksgiving. And I want to just have you consider, if you're married, if you have family, consider how do we want to do this holiday season? How do we want to think about Advent? How do we want to prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus? Do we want to do this deliberately, thoughtfully, humbly, prayerfully, with the word in our hearts? So just, just a word of, 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 of a consideration. Otherwise, the season just sneaks up on us and it just sort of happens, doesn't it? So let's take a moment to just think about how do we want to do this today? Take a few minutes and plan. How do I want to make this Advent different from those that have gone before? Um, there are a number of people in our congregation today who aren't here today. They're just, they're sick. They're hurting. Uh, I know Nancy Meyer, her back is really hurting her. Who would be willing to pray for her this week? Anyone ready? Olga, great. Anyone else? Okay, John, excellent, good. Uh, we've got little Lincoln, Kimsey. He's got, uh, David uh, texted me last night, but Lincoln's got pink eye, which is no fun. Not very contagious, and obviously they're at home. But who would be willing to pray for Lincoln? Uh, okay, excellent. Great. Thank you, Michelle. But just if you get a chance, pray for them and then just text, text them and say, hey, listen, I want you to know I'm praying for you. All right, speaking of prayer, let's jump in as we consider God's word. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, we pray that now that you would change us from the inside out. Do what we cannot possibly do. Open the eyes of the blind. Give, deaf, give, give hearing to those who are deaf. Move our hearts. Convict us of our sin. Comfort us in our sorrow. Renew us in our, in our weakness. Father, uh, give us wisdom in our folly. We pray these things in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Kids, what's your favorite part of school? Do you have a favorite? Maybe you think there's nothing about school that's favorite. But do you have anything 
that you might enjoy. Anyone? What's your favorite thing in school? Snacks. Snacks? That's good. History? Yes, I well, love a good history. Th- that's actually a good answer, man. I, I like I like the snacks too. You know what? You know what I liked actually. My favorite part of school was get this. My favorite part of school was recess. Anyone else? Anyone there was like recess? All right, Bill back there. Good. A few others. Their gym. Recess. Well, you know, the reason why is that I love to get out and play sports, especially basketball and soccer. Now, I don't know uh, how they do it now, but when I was a kid, at the beginning of recess, we would run out of the building as fast as we could. We only had so much time, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it was. And we would run out to the playground, say the soccer field, the basketball court, and immediately someone would yell, first pick. And then someone else would yell, second pick. And immediately they would begin to choose Players. They would take turns, the two kids, first and second pick, they would take turns going back and forth, making their teams. And, and who did they pick as their first pick? Can you guess? No, no, no not, not me. Like, like, like who, what kind of person would they pick the to be? The best, right? The best one. And who would be the last pick? The worst, <laughs> all right? <laughs> well, let me, let me introduce you to a guy named Marshall. Marshall was a classmate of mine, and he was in my second grade class, and Marshall hated recess. You know why? Because when it came to time to picking teams, he would sit there and wait and wait. At times, he wasn't even picked. Now, kids, how do you think Marshall felt? How do you think he felt sitting there waiting to be picked? And at times, just never be. What's that? Miserable. Miserable. That's right. Alone. Maybe like no one wanted him. Maybe he felt like he didn't matter at all. In fact, when he was picked, the other kids were often going, oh, great. We've got Marshall on our team. And while we were playing, if Marshall made a mistake, they would say, get in the game, Marshall. Get your head in the game. Or don't be so stupid. I remember one time when Marshall was playing goalie and the other team scored on him and one of his classmates said, listen to this, he said, Marshall, all you do is make things worse. You're such a loser. And I'll never forget what Marshall did next. <laughs> it's been so long, I still remember this. He screamed, I know, I know, I messed up. I mess everything up. And he himself, he just, he, he hit himself upside the head and he walked away crying. How do you think Marshall felt? There's a name for what Marshall felt. It's called shame. See, other people thought Marshall was a loser. And Marshall agreed. And that's shame. This past week I was volunteering at a local hospital just to provide pastoral care to patients. And I went into a room to visit a patient, an elderly person, and I asked, what would, you, would you like some company for a bit? That's kind of how we're told to do it. I'd be happy to pray for you if you'd like. And they said, oh, you're probably too busy. I'm just not that important. And I said, well, actually, you know what? I'm not too busy, and you are important. And they said, after a few minutes of conversation, they said, you know, I don't think anyone wants me around anymore. And in that moment, I felt sad and I felt angry. Like I wanted to scream, that's a lie! (laughs) 
<laughs> but I also felt this immediate and unwelcome connection to this person. You know why? Because I've thought that before. I think like I've thought that more times than I care to admit. I don't think anyone wants me around anymore. That's shame talking. A pastor friend of mine recently called and told me about a young couple that was new to their church. They decided to join, and as was my pastor friend's practice, he asked them, you know, as you join the church, if there's anything you'd like to address in your life, anything you just want to get out there, get in the open, anything that you've, that you've done wrong or that maybe has been done to you, I'd be, it'd be real privileged to hear about it. Well, the, the wife, this young couple, the wife took that to heart, and later that week, the three of them met, and she tearfully confessed that during their engagement, this was six, seven years ago, during their engagement, that she had been unfaithful on several occasions. And after my pastor friend wisely asked more about her story, it came out that prior to her relationship with the man who was now her husband, that she had been treated horribly by a lot of men, men who had used her and then just tossed her aside. And she knew of only one way of feeling some sense of value or worth. Was it wrong of her to be unfaithful to her man? Of course it was. But it wasn't that simple. My pastor friend said, as they met that first time, she sat with her hands covering her face, weeping, and saying, I can't believe I completely destroyed my marriage even before it started. Who does that? Why did she cover her face with her hands? She's ashamed. She's ashamed. Had she completely destroyed her marriage? Actually, she hadn't. From there on out, some incredible reconciliation and restoration happened. In fact, they're now doing better than ever in their marriage. And who destroys their marriage? Who does that? Almost all of us, don't we? Spouses, right? Can't tell you if I had a, a, you know, a $10 bill for every spouse who said to me, I can't believe what I've become in my marriage. I can't believe I've said the things I've said and done the things that I've done. Most of us are very good at sabotaging our own marriages. Sarah could have easily, could have arguably walked away on several occasions from me. So what is shame? Shame has to do with our status. It has to do with our social worth before others. Our status before others can vary from, from hero to zero. That's what, and, and so shame is, is, is the, 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 the zero part. Honor is up here, that's being a hero. Shame is, is being seen as a nobody as the problem in the eyes of others. Shame, listen to this, shame says three things to us. First, shame says you've been rejected. You've been rejected. You are excluded. Right? Remember Marshall and how he was excluded. Sometimes he wasn't even picked. He was excluded. It says you are not wanted. So first, shame says you're rejected. Second, shame says you've been revealed. You've been revealed. You've been exposed. You're naked. Everyone saw you miss that goal. The ball went right through your hands. You could have gotten it, Marshall, and you didn't. And everyone knows it. You've been revealed. So you've been rejected. You've been revealed. And third, you've become refuse. Kids, you know what refuse is? It's garbage. Stuff that nobody wants. 
It has to do with how you feel, how much worth you have. And the answer is you're nothing. So you're not wanted, you're naked, you're nothing. You're worthless, you're useless. Shame and shame. So that's, that, that's the three things that shame says to us. But, and shame comes to us at le- in at least three ways. Listen to this. Shame comes to us from what we do, right? Things from the things that we ourselves do. I can remember in high school, this is a terrible story. When I was in high school, we were at lunch, and uh, I was, there was this one kid I was really frustrated with, and I started to just criticize him and make fun of him to the other kids at the table, not realizing that he was sitting right behind me. And one of my friends says, dude, he's right behind you. Not that that made it any better, right? I shouldn't have done it regardless, but I felt this immediate sense, my face got red in the sense of shame. And it was a deserved shame. It's something I did. But so shame comes to us first from what we do, but shame also comes to us from what others do. I can remember as a kid, my dad would drop me off in high school early in the mornings before the bus would come up. And he, my dad drove a, night, uh, a yellow 1976 Plymouth Duster. Okay? And imagine a banana with wheels. Okay? In fact, in fact, that's not actually true. There was rust all over it. So imagine a banana with bruises with wheels. Okay? And then you would get the idea. And I would say, Dad, can you just go ahead and drop me off um, a few blocks away from school? And I'll, I'll go ahead and walk the rest of the way. I, I could, and I could use the exercise. Right? See, shame has this idea of, of we don't want to be associated with others. Think back to Marshall. Right? Marshall would join a team, and what would the rest of the team do? They would go, oh. They didn't want to be associated. There's a sense of distance from someone. So again, shame comes, from, comes to us from what others do, from what, I'm sorry, from what we do, from what others do. In fact, um, it was a wonderfully helpful book and I was preparing for this called Shame Interrupted by Ed Welch. And Welch tells a story from his own childhood. It's a beautiful story. It's a very, it's a very um, uh, vulnerable story in his part. He talks about how he's a kid. He's driving with his mom and he tells her that she can't go to some school event where parents are, parents are welcome. She asks him, hey, can I go to this event? Because, you know, his parents are welcome. And he says, no, you can't go. And she says, well, why not? And she says, because, mom, you're fat. And he just kind of kept doing his things, eight or nine years old, in the back seat of the car. And he looks in the rearview mirror and he sees tears streaming down his mom's eyes. And he said, you know, that's the only time I ever remember my mom crying. And I made her do it. Do you see, on the one hand, it was, it was him doing something. On the other hand, his association. He didn't want to be seen with his mom. He didn't want to be associated. He didn't want to, there was shame comes to us from association with others, right or wrong. So shame comes from what we do, from what others do. And third, it comes from what others do to me, how people treat me. I've told the story before, but I had a a friend of mine in in, in seminary, and he was a big guy, big Italian guy, 6'2", 6'3". And he talked about how growing up, his dad would just verbally abuse him. And he said to me, Bruce, he said, "After, after someone has told you you're worthless long enough, you begin to believe it. Right? That makes sense? That's the shame that he felt. He was never the son that his dad wanted him to be. No, important, this is so important. Here, last thing, we'll jump into the text. There, is, there are two kinds of shame. There's true shame, a deserved shame, and there's false or undeserved shame. 
And of course, what the Bible is going to say is that what, what God says is shameful, is true and deserved. Think of, of me back in high school making fun of someone sitting right behind me, that I was justly, deservedly ashamed. But then there's also what humans, maybe it's ourselves or our society, say is shameful. And so often that can be false or undeserved. Think of Marshall. I mean, it's a freaking game, right? I mean, the fact that Marshall felt terrible. What did he say? I just messed, the, I messed up. I mess everything up. And you're thinking, what kind of, what is going on here on this soccer field? This is a seriously demented criteria of worth, isn't it? That's the world we live in. You're not beautiful enough. You're not bright enough. You're not fast enough. You're not whatever it is. And the shame that comes from that. And this is what's so important. The scripture speaks to both of these. The shame that is true and real, as well as the shame that is from self and society that is actually false. In fact, you probably know that scripture has a lot to say about sin and guilt. But scripture has way more to say about shame. Isn't that interesting? In, fact, in Psalm 31, it's a classic text on shame. So let's take a look. If you want to follow along, your pew Bible, grab it. It's page, uh, it's a blue, the blue uh, pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 476. Again, it's Psalm 31. We'll walk through fairly quickly. I want to just show you a few things. First, where, we, where do we see shame in this psalm? Where do we see shame? Again, it's on page 476 of your pew Bible. Well, it starts out right there at the very beginning, verse 1. He says, In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In fact, a better translation probably would be, Do not let me be put to shame forever. David is saying, I'm already in a place of shame, and I don't want to stay there forever. I'm already feeling rejected. I already feel revealed. I already feel like refuse. I already feel like a nobody. Please don't let this go on forever. And again, in verse 17, he says the same thing. Let me not be put to shame. And then I'll skip forward to verse 7. He says, I will rejoice and be glad in your love, for you saw my affliction. That word affliction, you could translate it humiliation. You could translate it weakness. You saw my weakness, and you knew the anguish of my soul. Okay? Um... He said, basically saying, God, you saw how I became a nobody. I became a pariah. I became a reject, a loser, a burden, a problem for you saw that. But even more than that, he continues in verse 8, and you did, and you did, uh, you did not deliver me, you did not confine me over to the hand of my enemy. That is to say, uh, the, David's enemies wanted to have their way with him. They saw him as a mere tool, a pawn, an instrument to be used and discarded when finished. And David says, you put a stop to that. Verse 10, look at the NIV, reads, my strength fails because of my affliction. Again, the idea here is that he's saying, um, he's saying, look, it fails because of my humiliation, my weakness. When we are ashamed, we lose all our motivation, all our strength is gone. Verse 11, he says, we're really getting into it now. Listen, this is amazing. This is an incredible, very lyrical, poignant descriptions of, of David's situation. Because of all my enemies, I have become the utter contempt that is the reproach, the disgrace, the embarrassment. I have become the utter contempt of my neighbors. See, David's enemies are spreading lies about him. And all his, and all his neighbors, other people are believing them. 
And so they, they've looked at him with contempt. I become the, temp, the contempt of my neighbors and an object of dread to my closest friends. Isn't that amazing? David is utterly alone. His neighbors, his closest friends, they dread him. They find him contemptible. He continues, verse 11, those who see me on the street flee from me. They avoid, they avoid David at all costs. He continues in verse 12, I am forgotten as though I were dead. You know, we have those, those memes that are kind of a joke where it says, you're dead to me, right? This is what David's living. It's like, it's like he doesn't exist anymore. It's like everyone is ghosted on him. We're not going to kill you. We're just going to pretend like you don't exist, right? Because killing you would get messy. That could have you know, ramifications for us, consequences. We just pretend like you don't exist. We just move on. I am forgotten as though we were dead, verse 12. I have become, listen, this is so such a powerful metaphor. I have become like broken pottery. Kids, what do you do when, like, when in your household when like a bowl or a glass breaks? What do you do with all the broken pieces? You're like, oh, let's put this thing back together again. Right? What do you do with it? You just throw it away. It's not worth anything anymore. In fact, it's dangerous. You get to hurt yourself. David says, I feel like I've become broken pottery. I'm utterly useless. Do you hear the shame? No one, everyone thinks I'm the problem. I've made a mess. I always mess everything up. And then he says, I'm just broken pottery. I'm useless to everyone. He continues in verse 13, For I hear many whispering, terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. In fact, it goes not just a passive, hey, I wish you were dead. It goes now into an active sense. we got to get rid of this guy. This guy is a serious problem. He is an enemy of the state. So again, his friends, verse 13, his friends treat him as if he's dead, while his enemies actually want him dead. He's a threat that must be removed. Look at verse 18. Verse 8, the second half of verse 8, verse 18b, it says, With pride and contempt they speak arrogantly against the righteous. And finally in verse 20, it says, In the shelter of your presence you hide them from all human intrigues. You keep them safe in your dwelling from accusing tongues. This idea that, that to feel shame is to live in this world where all these voices are constantly accusing you, whether it's voices from outside or voices within. There's this constant accusation. You are not good enough. Well, what's going on? What's David experiencing? Well, we get a hint in verse 21. Look in verse 21. It says, Praise be to the Lord, for he showed me the wonders of his love when I was in a city under siege. And I want to take you to a certain situation here in 1 first, in first Samuel, where, oh, I'm sorry, sorry about that, Winston. In 1 Samuel 23, if you turn there real quick, 1 Samuel 23, I want to take you to a certain instance in David's life that isn't, 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 this isn't the, uh, the exact situation that David was in when he wrote Psalm 31, but it's a similar situation to what David was experiencing when he wrote Psalm 31. He says, listen, I was in a city under siege, and I was experiencing this shame. This is, this is very, this is amazing, okay? So again, this is page 250 in your pew Bible, 250, and we read this. So these first five verses where David saves the city of Keilah. When David was told, no, no, let me just give a little background here, making sure you understand. So David is, is here, and he's not king of Israel yet. He's actually a, he's a, he's a fugitive. In fact, it's, it's the, who is king is a guy named Saul. 
Saul has been anointed by God to be king, but then Saul disobeys God enough times where God says to Saul, that's it for you, and I'm going to look for someone else. And God, through the prophet Samuel, anoints David. So David is anointed to be the next king, but he's not yet king. He's still on the run. And so uh, King Saul is actively after him. So verse 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 1. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah. And they're looting the threshing floors. The, the Philistines are a common enemy of Israel. And, and this, this town, Keilah, is under attack. And David, verse 2, says, He inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, Go attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Here in Judah we are afraid. How much more than if we go to Keilah, which is on the border of Philist- with with uh, the Philistine country. If we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces, verse 4, once again David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to the Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and all his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. Okay? So here David goes out, he fights God's battles, he delivers the city of Keilah. Get this only for the city of Keilah to deliver David over to Saul. Look at verse 7. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands. For David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Verse 9, when David learned that, that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? So that's the question, right? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, yes, he will, that Saul will come. Then verse 12, again David asked, will the citizens of Keilah, the city that I've just delivered, I've just rescued, will they surrender me? And my men to Saul. And the Lord said what? They will. So here David goes from being the hero, the savior of the city, and now he's what? He's a zero. He's the guy that we've got to get rid of. Because if Saul and all his forces come, what are they going to do? They're going to take out the entire city. And so all we've got to do is get rid of David, hand him over, the very guy who saved us from the Philistines. And so David goes from being the guy who's a hero, who's honored, to being the guy who's a pariah, who's the other outcast, the guy that no one wants here. And so what does he do? Look at verses 13 and 14. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. So what did David do? He saved the city a second time. How did he save it? By leaving it. Verse 14, David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. It's this powerful picture of a situation where David went from being hero to zero, how he could have been in a besieged He could have been in a situation where he, because of him, everyone was in trouble, and he would have been the persona non grata, the pariah, the outcast. So with that, now this is a very important to understand this. If we choose to be God's helper, if we choose to fight his battles, we will know hostility and humiliation. 
In fact, we'll know that hostility and humiliation often from the very people that we're trying to help. Who are history's greatest helpers? Who are the people who have helped humanity the most? I'll answer the first one. Jesus, what happened to him? He got crucified. What about Gandhi? What happened to him? Assassinated. Martin Luther King, what happened to him? Shot. He got shot. Good. Abraham Lincoln, what happened to him? All right? Maybe thinking, you know what? Maybe it's a good idea not to help people. Maybe it's a good idea not to fight God's battles. In fact, I had a pastor friend this past week. I was met up with my pastor friends in, uh, in Columbus, Ohio. We all met and just hung out together, prayed with each other, shared stories. And I remember him talking about how recently a family had left his church, a family that he'd invested and poured so much time into and cared for them. And he sat there just weeping because he said, I, I just gave so much of my life to this family and just... They just ghosted. Like, we're done. Sorry, we're out. And he said, he just said, what's wrong with me? See, if you choose to love people, choose to help people, you will be confronted with shame. You will often be rejected by the very people that you're trying to help. In fact, another story, recently a counselor friend of mine with a PhD, 20, 30 years of experience had been counseling a, a teenager for about two, three years with depression. And recently, this young man decided to take his own life. And the very next day, the teenager's mom called this counselor and said, why couldn't you heal him? Why didn't you do your damn job? I don't ever want to talk to you or see your face again. Imagine what he was feeling, the shame. Again, unjust, undeserved shame, but real. So let's just briefly walk through this psalm. In verses 1 through 4, David says, help me, I'm humiliated. He says, help me, I'm humiliated. Again, this is Psalm 31 on page, um, on page 476. He says, help me, I'm humiliated. He says, be my fortress because others are constantly making fun of me. Verses 1 through 4, he says, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead me and guide me. He's saying, save me from shame. Steer the ship. I love that last part. He says, he says, lead me and guide me. He says, I don't know what to do. When we are ashamed, we don't know what to do. So in verse, he says, help me. I'm humiliated. Then he's, in verses 5 through 8, he says, you're my hope. I love these verses. Verses 5 through 8, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, O Lord, my faithful God. Those words should sound a little familiar. They're spoken by Jesus on the cross. Verse 6, he says, I hate those who cling to worthless idols. As for me, I trust in the Lord. The first thing that we need to do with shame is trust, is actually give our situation, our circumstance to him. I am entrusting this very painful situation to you, believing that you can use it in a way that brings life to me and to others. He says, I'm going to trust you with this. I'm committing my life, my spirit to you. And I am giving you, I, I will trust you with it. Verse 7, I, this, I love this. I will be glad and rejoice in your love, for you saw my affliction, and you knew the anguish of my soul. 
listen, gang, God is not someone who is distant and far away. He sees, he sees your condition. He sees your situation. He knows you. A recent psychologist said that one of the most basic human longings is to be seen. He says, we're born and we go about looking for someone who's looking for us. And David says, someone's looking for me. You have seen, you saw my affliction. You know what I'm going through. Shame makes us feel so alone, and David realizes he's not alone. Someone sees him and knows him, who knows his struggle. He, he says, you, so first help me. And he says, you are my hope. I'm trusting in you. I know that you see me. I know that you know what I'm going through. And of course, Jesus himself, in this most intimate way, lives our life. He actually comes down and knows our struggle because he tastes it firsthand. He knows our sorrow. He knows our shame. He knows our rejection. He knows our loneliness. And then finally, in verse, so first he says in verses 1 through 4, help me, verses 5 through 8, you're my hope. Verses 9 through 13, he says, please help because I'm humiliated. I love these verses. Verse 9, he says, Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. Again, he's describing his shame. My soul is consumed with anguish and my years with groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction, that is my humiliation. And my bones grow weak because of all my enemies. I am the utter contempt of my neighbors, an object of dread to my closest friends, those who see me in the streets, Flee from me, because I'm totally alone. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I've become like broken pottery. But then in verse 14, he again expresses hope in the Lord. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. And this is so beautiful. I love this verse 15. He says, my times are in your hands. He's saying, look, I had a plan for my life, and it hasn't gone remotely like I thought it would. I'm in a place of shame now. I'm throwing out the plan that I had for my life, but I believe that my times are in your hands. And I'm going to wait. I'm going to do life according to your plan, according to your schedule. Do you see the trust, the hope that he's placing in the Lord? I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of the enemies, from those who pursue me. And then in verse 16, let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. This is, what, this, is what God, this is what David longs for. He is done considering the opinions of men. He realizes that he can't please people. That people are unpleasable. That you will never, even if you please someone for one day, guess what? There's tomorrow. And he says, let the light of your face shine on me. I'm going to start caring less what people think and far more what you think. And that can be an utter revolution. That is the beauty, the blessing, the goodness that can come out of our shame. When we realize that we have been so shamed by the world, by the voices within us and all around us, it's time to turn down that volume to those voices and turn up the volume to God's voice. And to say, to say, let the light of your face, let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. You know, some, some of you who struggle lifelong with shame, you're hearing those words, you know, God isn't, he wouldn't, his face would not shine upon me. 
And all I have to say is this. God specializes in shining his face upon those who are most ashamed. You read the story of the Bible from beginning to end, God chooses people who are the most humiliated publicly. He loves to work with the lowly. Let me give you two brief examples. Abraham and Sarah. What, were, were, they, were, they, were, they, um, were they upstanding and, and, and honored people? No, they were elderly and they were what? They had no, no children. That is utterly shameful. God, in the ancient world, you have no kids, you've got no future, you have no legacy, nothing. It's over. And God says, guess what? I'm going to start with the most shameful people I can find. Let me give you another example. Very, one of the very climaxes, those of you who are in men's discipleship ministry, you'll see one of the climaxes of Mark's gospel. It was when Jesus sits down at the temple courts. The treasury's right there. All these people are throwing in all this money, wealthy Jews, wealthy Israelites coming from faraway places to do their thing and to make a big deal. Everyone see how much money they're given. And then what happens? An elderly widow, poor, comes up, gives two copper coins or whatever, some paltry amount of money. And Jesus says, whoa, time out. Stop everything. Stop the press. Guys, hold on. You see this woman. She has given more than everyone else. For everyone else gave out of their wealth, but she has given out of her poverty. Do you see the beauty of that? That God is all about attracting himself and sweeping down and, and residing with and living with and enjoying and, and praising and honoring those whom the world has forgotten. And David believes it. Look in verses 19 and 20. I love what he says here. It's so awesome. We're almost done. How abundant are the good things that you have stored up for those who fear you, that you bestow in the sight of all on those who take refuge in you. In the shelter of your presence, you hide them from all human intrigues. You keep them safe in your dwelling from accusing tongues. He's saying, listen, for those who choose to say, you know what, I am going to revere your voice. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to fear you. I'm going to make your voice first in my life. I'm going to stop caring what other people think. I'm going to stop caring what I think. And I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to gaze upon your face, upon your smile. He says there are good things in store for you. It's such a beautiful... I challenge you to take that verse with you today and believe David's promise. How abundant are the good things that you have stored up for those who fear you, that you bestow in the sight of all on those who take refuge in you. And then in verses 21 and 22, David celebrates. He, he says, Hallelujah, praise be to the Lord, for he showed me the wonders of his love when I was in a city under siege. David, here's David, under siege. Everyone hates him. He's a zero. And he discovers it's there that he finds freedom. Because no longer does he, does he say, I'm not going to care what people think. I am going to fear the Lord and look to his face. His face of delight, his face of radiant and relentless joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.